me in your scriptures to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Before we hear God's word read and expounded, let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we do approach thy throne of grace in this hour through thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come not in our own merit, our own righteousness, but we come in the righteousness of another, thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We ask, O Lord, that thou wouldst be pleased to assist us, that we might rightly hear thy word, that we might receive it uh, as it is indeed the very word of God that we might lay it up in our hearts, and that we might practice it in our lives for thy glory, for our good, and the extension of thy kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. To the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song. God be merciful unto us, and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously, and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen. I thought this might be an appropriate passage for us to consider uh, as we conclude this Lord's Day uh, and, as, and as a connection uh, to this conference on missions. So I want us to take a little time to look through this passage today. I want us to see in it first that it is a prayer for the edification of the church in verse 1. Secondly, it's a prayer for the extension of the church in verses 2 through 5. And then we see a prophecy for both the extension and the edification of the church uh, in verses 6 and 7. A prayer for the edification of the church, a prayer for the extension of the church, and then a prophecy of the edification and the extension of the church. Now, children, I just want to remind you about these psalms. More than half of them written by David. But they are the fruits, generally, of an individual's personal communication with God. That's how they started. It's almost like God recorded David or some of the other psalmist prayers, but they wrote them down. And then they gave them to the chief musician, and then they became part of the corpus of what the people of God would sing in corporate worship. And so these individual prayers become corporate psalms or singing prayers. The, the second way that we respond to God's word, I'm sure that your pastor has often taught you that in corporate worship, God begins the worship service with the call. He's going to end it with the benediction. He begins the conversation. He ends the conversation. But in the midst of the worship, he speaks, and then we respond. He speaks through his reading and the exposition of the word of God, and then we respond in prayer and in praise. And in the Psalms, we see the connection of prayer and praise together. And that's what we have here uh, in this psalm. John Calvin, commenting on this psalm, said the psalm contains a prayer for a blessing upon the church, 
that besides being preserved in a state of safety in Judea, it might be enlarged to a new and unprecedented extent. It touches shortly upon the kingdom of God, which was to be erected in the world upon the coming of Christ. Now, another thing to remind us is that the people of God Uh, and significantly the leaders of the time of Jesus, as our pastor said uh, in his sermon on the publican uh, and the Pharisee, or the Pharisee and the publican, was that most of the leaders of God's people failed to know the signs of the times. They failed to recognize that the Messiah that had been spoken of all the way back in Genesis 3.15 had arrived. They failed to recognize that. And they also failed to recognize that the gospel would go to the nations. And yet they had been singing in the Psalms that that's exactly what God's plan was. And it lets us know that we can sing all 150 Psalms consecutively. And we can still miss their message. Right? We need God's spirit to write these things in our heart. We can have them all memorized, as most of the Jews did that still couldn't see what God had said would take place. So let us be mindful of that as we consider this psalm. Let me look first at the first verse in the Hebrew Bible briefly. To the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song. So it's to the chief musician. It's given to the leader of corporate worship so that this song, this private prayer, might be be provided to the people of God as a corporate singing prayer. And we're told that this psalm is a psalm and it's also a song. And I'm sure your pastor has taught you many times about the three Greek words we find uh, in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Well, here... We have two of those three referred to. And the same words as we find in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 are the words that we find in the Septuagint, right, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So here we have an example of a psalm and a song. And so let's begin to look at this psalm, this prayer and prophecy. First, a prayer for the edification of the church in verse 1. Let me read that for you again. God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Does that sound familiar, children? Did you just hear it about two and a half or three hours ago at the close of the morning worship service? Isn't it fairly obvious that the psalmist was meditating upon the ironic blessing as he begins this psalm? Let's briefly consider that ironic blessing again. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. God spoke to Moses, spoke to Aaron, said, This is the blessing you to put upon the people of Israel, the children of Israel, and in that blessing I will bless. As men made of clay, my ambassadors speak this benediction, I will bless thee. Have you ever considered that this blessing comes to us, thy people, only because of God's malediction upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Just turn this benediction in reverse. The Lord curse thee and be far from thee. The Lord make his face to frown upon you. And be wrathful towards you. The Lord's countenance be against you again and give you enmity. 
That's exactly what took place on the cross when the Lord, our Father, poured out his wrath upon his Son. He who knew no sin became sin for us. When we think about this benediction, we recognize it comes through the malediction. It comes through, right, the harm that would be done to the Lord Jesus so that he might be the victor and crush the head of the serpent. So let us think about that as we consider this blessing. First, we have the subject of prayer, us. This is, again, a private prayer, but the prayer, the prayer, the psalmist says, us. God be merciful to us. He's not individualistic here. Reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, our Father that art in heaven. Right? It's a daily prayer. We've got to ask for our bread daily. So in some ways, it can be a private prayer. We can pray that prayer by ourselves, and yet in it, we can still be praying for the corporate body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he open with? Be merciful unto us. Be merciful. Sound familiar, children? Did we just hear a publican who was beating his breast and crying, Be merciful unto me, the sinner? The sinner? It starts there. The first thing we need is forgiveness. We need to be forgiven. I've mentioned John Murray a few times this week. Not because he's the only uh, author uh, that I've read, uh, but it is one that I've been reading a lot lately because I have a lecture to give, Lord willing, uh, in several weeks uh, to a group of Presbyterians representing about 10 or 12 different Presbyterian denominations in America or in North America. Also, he is and was uh, instrumental in the founding of our denomination uh, in 1965. So would it surprise you that the last words of John Murray were, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Probably a pair prayer similar to the first prayer as he entered into the kingdom of God, right, in his conversion. And it's the last words he spoke before he went to glory. Be merciful. Having been merciful, bless us. Now he's asking for something in the present. He's speaking about the sins of the past. Please forgive me. Forgive us. And now bless us. Send revival and reformation our way. Bless us in your grace. We need your blessing. We need your blessing upon the work of our hands. We have work to do. But as Paul says, as as I read earlier, I guess it was Friday night in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. If you remember when Paul returned after the first missionary journey to to Antioch, where he and Barnabas had been teaching for a couple years, he comes back to that presbytery that sent them out, and and he rehearses what God had done through them. Not what he had done, but what God had done. So bless us, and then thirdly, cause his face to shine upon us, or literally in the Hebrew could, could, could be read, cause your face to be with us, be favorable towards us, and be present with us. As we go out, be amongst us. Remember, the, tri- the Israel tribes were not supposed to move until God told them to move. When it's time to move, it's time to go, because you're going to be with God. We see in this verse, I think, the blessing reminds us that the blessing of the world comes through the church. And that's what was promised by God or told to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. Let's look just briefly at that verse. Genesis 
12, 3. I'll read verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said, said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This was a promise to God's people of old. God continued to echo this theme throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the historical books. It's highlighted in the wisdom books. It dominates the prophets. And certainly we find it throughout the Psalter, don't we? William Binney, Scottish Presbyterian, said this, In order to the evangelization of the world, nothing more is required than that the churches of Christendom be baptized with a fresh effusion of the Spirit power. In other words, what he's saying and what I think this text is saying is we can't expect world missions to flourish when the church itself that already exists is not revived. A dead informal church is not an effective instrument to take the gospel to the nations. If God hasn't stirred us and revived us here, he's not going to go with us as we go to the nations taking his gospel to us. As we grow in our appreciation of that gospel Then we go in confidence and power and in gratitude with the right mode of taking the gospel to the nations. Not to civilize them, not to pat ourselves on the back, not to write glowing prayer reports with high numbers, statistical numbers that impress people. No, it's to see more people come to kiss the sun. To bow down and kiss him. And I'm again sure your pastors told you that that kiss of the, of the Messiah is predominantly a kiss of submission there in that text. Certainly it includes love. But at its heart it's about respect. It's about recognizing who he is and who we are in light of that. So verse 1, a prayer for the edification of the church. Verses 2 and 3, a prayer for the extension of the church. And I believe here, as we pray for the extension of the church, this psalm would encourage us to pray along three lines. The psalm breaks down into three sections. Right, children? A prayer for the edification, the flourishing of the church as it is today. A prayer for extension, the growth of the church in the future, and a prophecy that both of the things we're praying for, that God tells us to pray for, will take place. Three-part psalm in the middle here, sandwiched between part one and part two, part uh, part three. We have part two, three prongs. First, we see that we're to pray that divine truth might be proclaimed and received among the nations. Verse 2, that thy way may be known upon the earth by saving health among the nations. You see here, earth and nations, we can understand as parallel, as synonyms. But is thy way and saving health synonymous? That's a question we have to ask ourselves when we're considering Hebraic poetry. I would contend not, and most of the commentators would agree. When we look at the way, thy way, Calvin says it's referring to God's covenant, but then as he goes on, it seems to be suggesting he's speaking about the law in particular. And saving health, 
the gospel, the good news. In other words, when we take the gospel, we have to take the law too. Right? There needs to be a law work done. That doesn't mean we all have to believe that that law work looks the same uh, in everyone's conversion. Right? We don't all expect people to have a John Bunyan kind of experience. Your session doesn't uh, preclude people from making a credible profession just because they don't have the same law work as they had or as Bunyan had. But nonetheless, there had to be conviction of sin. We don't flee to Christ if we're not prepared to give up our sin. At some level, there's some law work. In Romans 3.20, we're told that it's by the law that comes the knowledge of sin. It's when we see that transcript of God's holiness and God opens our eyes to see the way we're living in comparison to that. When he convicts us of our sin, praise God, when he effectually draws us, he doesn't leave us there, but he gives us a fresh glimpse of his glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to understand what was going on at the cross. And then God gives us that ability, that willingness to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as he's found in the gospel, as prophet, priest, and king, as Lord and Savior. That's what's being taught here. That's what we're to pray. We're to pray that God's whole counsel and God's gospel is broad. It's not just three or four easy points. There may be times when that's how we express it to people in a few verses that discuss a few major points of the gospel. But just consider how differently the Lord Jesus presents the gospel in his many, not only his many public sermons, but how about in his conversation with different people, which dominate the gospels. How about Paul saying that He's not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1, and then he expounds that gospel. It's a broad, it's an expansive thing. We should pray that divine truth, the law and the gospel, would be proclaimed and received among the nations. Secondly, we should pray that divine worship might be established among the nations. And should we just pray that truncated truth should be proclaimed and received? In the, of course not. So should we just pray that some form of worship that could be loosely called Christian should be established in the nations? Of course not. So we should pray for worship that's regulated by the king himself. We should pray that worship is established just the way God has told us to do it. We see this in verse 3 and 5, and we could say that this might be the center in some ways. But obviously, if people don't understand the truth, the law and the gospel, they're not going to come to be true worshipers. Let the people praise thee, O God, verse 3. Let all the people praise thee. And then it's repeated in verse 5. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Again, this word people could be translated nations just as well as people. And when it's speaking of nations, it's not necessarily considering the nation states uh, as we describe them today. But it's talking about everyone in every place, all nations, tribes, kindred, and tongues. We learn in John 4 that the Father seeketh such to worship him. God's in the business of drawing men and women and children of all ages, all tribes, all kindreds, all nations to himself to make us worshipers. And so we should pray that divine worship, biblical worship, regulative principle worship, and regulative principle worship, listen to me, not just externally, but internally as well. God's word has a lot to say 
about how our hearts should be framed when we're engaged in corporate worship. And I believe that one temptation that can befall us in our movement is to begin to pat ourselves on the back. As Pastor said, we can all become a little pharisaical. We're very easily tempted to do that, right? It wasn't one of the Puritans that said we all have a little pope in our breast. Well, we all have a little Pharisee that occasionally speaks to us. And sometimes we don't we sometimes we do listen. Sometimes we don't put up and say this is what the word says. That's that's what we should do, right? Or if it if that voice is Satan's voice, we need to put up the armor. We need to put up the shield of faith. What does God's word say? But let us never forget the regulative principle reaches even to what the word has to say about how we engage our hearts in prayer. When you say the amen, are you saying it because you were really paying attention? You're really entering in to the request, the praise, right? That's what we're called to do. Even at 3.30 on the Lord's Day afternoon, right? And sometimes we need the Lord, we need to ask the Lord to gird up our hearts and our minds. We're not distracted in these things. Then, thirdly, in verse 4, we see that we're to pray that divine government might be established among the nations. How about that? Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For, here's the reason, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Selah. Here we're to pray that the nations will be glad and sing because God is judging the people righteously and governing the nations upon the earth. Well, isn't that already true? Theologically, isn't it so that God is in fact right now judging people righteously in Liberia and in other other places with much more oppressive governments? So don't you think there's something more here? Isn't, aren't we to understand that God is asking, we're told here to pray that God's re- the redemptive principles and biblical principles of self-government, family government, church government, and civil government would begin to percolate in a nation so that people would be less and less oppressed, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. That's what we're to pray for. And so when we're praying for that gospel to go forward, we're praying for a pretty broad gospel that includes principles related to all the institutions that God has established in this world that he has created and orders. So we're to pray that the gospel would go forth in its power, a whole gospel, a full gospel. And I'm not talking about a Pentecostal gospel when I talk about full gospel. The whole counsel of God. And we're to pray that divine worship would be established and divine government. You recognize that if churches are planted with biblical Westminster Confession, catechism, confession, doctrine taught, and the leaders believe in those things, and yet they begin from the very beginning in corporate worship as an organized church to have a mixture of African traditional religion and their worship, that kind of worship and Christian worship, you recognize that eventually any doctrinal understanding that people have will be eroded? Yes, our worship reflects our doctrine, but there is a feedback loop. The way we worship eventually affects how we think. Correct? And how will we maintain that body of truth if the organizational structure that God has established in his wisdom is ignored so that the organizational structure of a culture in which the gospel is taken is utilized instead? And so how can we expect 
so-called Reformed churches that have chosen to run themselves by business models in this country, why would we not be surprised that they're going to jump to sociological and anthropological models that are predominantly based on humanism? Would, Would that surprise us? And when that happens, can we not almost immediately expect that their worship and government are not going to be considered very seriously? And then can we acknowledge then that making disciples, maybe that's being carried out to some degree, maybe incorporating them through baptism in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is being done, but are they teaching them all things whatsoever Christ has commanded? And can we say that it's okay to say we'll fulfill the Great Commission, but we'll only do two and a half parts of the three? We'll, we'll do the first, we'll do the second, but that whole council, let's just give part of that council. Let's just give out part of that council. How's that going to work? That disease that's left will eventually percolate and absorb and get into everything else. And eventually the churches that have been established will no longer be churches. They may still say church painted on a rough sign just like, yep, there's still plenty of places in America that still say church on them. And it's pretty clear that a lot of the candlesticks have been removed. So we need to think through these kind of things as we consider what the Lord has to say for us in this psalm in terms of how to guide and order our prayers regarding the extension of his kingdom. We've got to start with praying for ourselves, for the edification, the revival and reformation of the church as it is so that the church can go forth and be the instrument of the Lord in the extension of his kingdom. And then praying that divine worship and government as well as the whole counsel of God would be taught and established. Lastly, what an encouragement in our prayers that the Lord has given us a prophecy concerning the extension of the church here in verses 6 and 7. Then shall the earth yield her increase and God. Even our own God shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. What I want us to recognize is there's some parallels here between these verses and Isaiah chapter 60. Let me read Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 60, 1 through 5. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the gross darkness of the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Not just people as individuals, but as corporate bodies, governmental bodies, tribes, nations, kindreds. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, and the kingdom, kings to the brightness of thy rising. Oh, that's beautiful. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from far, and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. Remember what pastor said about what sea reflects and what it, re- what it refers to oftentimes? The Gentiles. The sea shall be converted unto thee. 
Here's a parallel. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Yeah, this is what the psalmist is thinking. It's something parallel to this psalm. Matthew Henry, as he speaks on this psalmist, says, The psalmist carried out by the spirit of prophecy foretells the glorious estate of the Christian church in which the Jews and Gentiles should unite in one flock, the beginning of which blessed work ought to be, listen to this, the beginning of which blessed work ought to be the matter of our joy and praise. It's already begun. And we can be thankful and praise. And the completing of it, our prayer and hope. We can praise God that he's begun this. And we can pray and hope. And we know with confidence that he will complete it because he's told us right here. He's promised the extension of the church in verse 6a. Then shall the earth yield her increase. Now, I was surprised that many of the commentators kind of think this is referring to agricultural fruitfulness. And it just shocks me, given the whole tenor of the psalm. Now, that may be part of it. God may bless his people as he blesses the nations, and they're faithful in their labors. Um, they, they're faithful with the money he gives as stewards. They, they return back to him. Uh, they, they give to the needy. Yes, he often blesses. But I think there's something more here than that. He's speaking of it spiritually. The earth will yield her increase. It's as good as done. Literally, we could read the earth has yield her increase in the Hebrew. So it's really in the past tense, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of telling us that it's certain in the future. It's as good as done. It, it can't fail. This is part of God's eternal counsel. If you remember, I spoke to us briefly about the motive of missions, um, and I referred to one of them as being the theological necessity. In other words, this is the plan of God. How can we not walk in his plan? How can we ignore his plan and come up with a different one? He's called us to be instruments of this plan. He's called us to be in this mission society, the church. So he promises the blessing or of the extension of the church. He also promises that there'll be a blessing upon us, the edification of the church as it is today. And God, even our own God, shall bless us. We pray for blessing, we pray for extension. We pray for edification, and we pray for extension. And God promises to give us. And it's our own God, our covenant-keeping God. The one who's chosen to have relationship with us and establish that relationship through covenant promise. Spurgeon commenting on verse 7a, which reads, God shall bless us, says that the prayer of the first verse is the song of the last. And so what we just prayed, God's saying it's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass. God's going to extend the church and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. People of all nations, tribes, kindred, and tongues will kiss the Son. They will bow down and kiss him in obedience and in worship. Right? What is worship? The two words for worship, one of them refers to bowing down, right, humility. The other one refers to service. And that's why we often call this a worship service. All ends of the earth will do it. They shall fear him. All nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues. And considering this, it reminded me of verses 6 and 7a of Revelation 14. I guess you're going to get there very, very soon. And there we, we hear these words read. And I saw another angel or another messenger fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, not a changing gospel, an everlasting gospel, 
A gospel that's never changed. The message is from all eternity, and it's to all eternity. To preach unto them that dwell in the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. Fill in the blank. An angel coming with the everlasting gospel. You think he's going to say, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that what you're expecting him to say? He's going to say, fear God and give glory to him. Now, we can certainly expand that gospel message, but in its essence, think about that. That's ultimately what it is. Humbling ourselves before our creator God. Humbling ourselves to accept the method of salvation that he has established. Not seeking it through our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of another, the Son himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. This ought to give us gospel optimism. That doesn't mean there should be no realism. There's plenty of realism. As you're working through the book of Revelation, you can't end up being a little realistic. Right? I'm not talking about a saccharine, fake optimism that doesn't recognize there's hard times for the church in this epoch, in this period that we're reading. You're reading about Lord's Day by Lord's Day in the book of Revelation. But there's a goal. God's plan is set. It's been set from all eternity, and it's going to come to pass. And it's going to come to pass through weak vessels of clay like ourselves. It's going to come to pass through ambassadors of Christ, ordained appropriately by presbyteries, and sent out by presbyteries, but it's going to come about as well through ruling elders and deacons and from every member of the mission society of the church, that everybody ought to be taking an interest in these matters. That's what I think Paul's getting at as I apply this passage in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and I'll close with just looking at this passage very briefly. We think about what's our duty regarding evangelism and missions. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Paul's writing to a church that apparently he's never been to. But it's pretty clear to me that Epaphras that's referred to in 1, 7 and then is referred to again in chapter 4, he's likely the minister and he's been sent by the church to minister to Paul in prison, it's pretty clear that this, this church or churches in Colossae were likely established while Paul was doing his three-year ministry in Ephesus and had established uh, a seminary or school of the prophets that was meeting likely in the middle of the day at the school of Tyrannus during the time in which the school would have been closed in the very heat of the day uh, in that time. Culturally, usually the schools would have met in the morning and in the late afternoon. And there would have been a time where everybody went home kind of for siesta. Some of you, I'm sure you know what a siesta is. And it's likely that Paul and the gang got to use it during the siesta. And it's there where he likely educated men that went out and then were told in the book of Acts that that whole region had the word of God proclaimed to them. It wasn't all by Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas. It was through people that were sent. So let me read this passage briefly to you. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. As Paul wraps up, he says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Then he goes on to say, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, 
redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Paul basically says, you members of the church here in Colossae have two duties. Two duties. Recognize the minister's member's distinction, and having recognized that distinction, pray for us. I commend you as a congregation. It's so encouraging that your minister and your elders have sought to find mission works that are carried out and attempting to be carried out following God's word in accordance with the regulative principle of the church and the regulative principle of missions. And that they encourage you as a congregation to pray for those works. I thank you for praying for the work in Liberia. And clearly, your prayers are being answered by your Savior. It's a beautiful thing. Pray. Pray for us. So continue to pray for them. But also pray for your minister as he goes sits in the concourse of people's work at a coffee shop or wherever he's at. And he's got his shirt on with the symbol of the church and Pastor Todd there as he has opportunity to interact with people that are without generally or sometimes they're within the church somewhere but they're, they're struggling and maybe in a place where they don't have green pastures and he seeks to minister to them so pray for him pray for other ministers in your denomination and other like-minded congregations remember we talked about those 12 plates spinning that an evangelist a a church planter starts, and he can start with just one plate and then moves to the next. Well, your pastor's got all 12 plates going now. He's a busy man. And there are other ministers like that. And as I said yesterday, sometimes that's a lot harder than missions work where you only got a handful of plates going so far. you only got a few duties. But once you get 12, besides your family duties and your personal duties and your civic duties... That's a lot of things to watch over and to think about. It's easy to let a plate fall, to stop something, forget something, until something breaks, right? Until it stops and breaks. So please pray for those that are the ambassadors of the Lord, that have been called to that unique work. But then he goes on to say, and pray for them. Right, that they would have an open door, they'd have opportunities, and then they would seize those opportunities. In their speech, they'd make clear the gospel. They'd take time to understand who they're speaking to and how best to present the gospel in a given situation where the person's at. Not changing the gospel message, but recognizing that people are in different places. Certainly, Jesus had a different evangelistic method on the people that we have evidence of his interacting with. And also, be bold. Even ministers can quake in their boots. No matter how big, how strong, how how big their cowboy boots are, they can still, you can still be occasionally afraid. Really Really every time if it wasn't by the grace of God. There would never be a time when any of us would be comfortable speaking about our Lord and Savior if it wasn't by God's grace. So pray for that. But then he goes on to say, now you, this is the second duty, walk in wisdom towards them that are without. He doesn't have to say keep, keep God's law. That's kind of a given. He's been talking about how you should relate as a husband and as a wife, as a child, and as a parent, how you should be relating as a master and a servant. He's been covering those duties in those relations, in your place and station. But now he's saying, hey, in all that, walk in wisdom. Think through what you're doing. Don't have an inordinate desire, maybe towards something that's legitimate, like a little gaming or 
How about, I like golf. How about, you think I couldn't be tempted to be out on the golf course every afternoon or every day? How many Christian retirees in my neighborhood spend way more time on the golf course than they do in any Christian activities? Yet legitimate things can become idols to us. Walk in wisdom. And that's going to involve redeeming the time. We only have so many hours to serve the Lord. Are we allowed to have legitimate diversions? Yes. But can our diversions become distractions and overwhelm us and our time and our energies? Yes. That's what Paul's saying. Think through these things, then let your speech be seasoned with grace. Grow in patience. Think before you speak. When you speak, season it with salt. You may have hard things to say, but you can still say them in a way that's gracious. And guess what? A sharp and an oiled blade goes deeper. So be prepared. Sharpen your blade. Sharpen your tool. Know what you're going to say. Think through what you're going to say. Be prepared for that. And then also speak in a way that your words might be accepted. That's what we're called to do as members of this mission society, to pray and to labor. And may God increase, may bless the labor of our hands. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for another sample, another place pattern where we can go to know how we ought to pray for the extension of thy kingdom. Would you be pleased to write these things upon our heart? May we actually carry them out. May we grow in our love for you and for the extension of thy kingdom. May we be more faithful in praying for open doors, for ministers of the gospel, for your ambassadors to take the word to those that are without, that are lost in trespasses and sins. And may we be more equipped to speak a word in season and out of season to those who know you not, who are struggling, who don't know where to go, who are disoriented, who are bound in sin. May, we grant, may you be pleased to grant us wisdom that we might present the light of thy gospel and might you be pleased to attend that conversation and bring many to a saving knowledge of Christ. May we be faithful and seek to take the opportunity to encourage those we know to come and worship with us, that they might hear the gospel presented from this pulpit and might come under its sound and ultimately kiss the Son. Oh, be pleased to do such, we ask. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.